You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Are you like ready to work out or are you spent? Well, I was working out while watching Boston. So it was the perfect culmination of everything for me. So now I am spent. Hmm. How are you feeling? Both. I'm emotionally spent. Physically, I'm raring to go. So what are you going to do with this perplexing situation? Uh, well, I did a quality workout yesterday, so I'm going to go out for a, a recovery workout today, a recovery run, and a, maybe I'll pour it into my lift. That's a good idea. Or I'm going to end up doing a medium-long run on accident. Well, I took eight straight days off of running, and this was my first run back uh, after eight days off. And, of course, you shouldn't do a quality mm. day after taking eight days off, but I, I was like, you know what's safe? It's 25 degrees it's 20 mile an hour winds outside i was like i can get on the treadmill at 15 percent grind while watching the boston marathon that's a pretty safe entry back mm. so i got on and did a tempo effort on the treadmill at 15 percent while watching eliud kipchoge just fade so uh you know all worked mm. itself out what were you doing while watching the marathon laying on the couch <laughs> messaging you jack rich my uncle tim all the running fans in my life. I don't think any of my family. Yeah, I don't think any of my family was watching Boston. Uh, thanks for sending over the link. What'd you think of the race? I, uh, God, it's a good race. It is such a good race. It is, and it is a perfectly designed course to make sure that you have a good race. Is it, though? Yeah, I think so, <laughs> in my opinion. I'll explain mine, then I want to hear your take. Mm-hmm. The first half is so runnable that anyone can be in it. People who maybe couldn't run with the top dogs can stay in it for a, for a while. And then the last two miles are fast enough that even if some some of the scruff have made it through to the end, the best runners can still take off and go. But that hilly section in the second half, in like basically lap three if it were a mile race really wears down the top end and the chuff at the same time and it gets everyone on equal playing ground for a little bit and then you see these late race emergences of people that shouldn't be there so i feel like the strong runners can still win it but the gritty runners have a chance to be in it for a long time so i think it's the perfect setup for a intriguing race maybe not the way you'd want to set up for a pr or for the best runner to win but it's the way you'd set it up if you want drama year after year yeah i i think for sure you're correct in the sense that boston set up to keep the most people in the race for the longest to make it an intriguing race you are for sure right there Mm -hmm. but the back half of those who really should be managing their effort and not being in the race early explode in the last in the last half it's like uh the time gaps just become so Mm -hmm. drastic in the last bit so for those of you who don't know much about boston or didn't watch boston's a net negative course meaning you descend more than you climb and you basically go downhill for the first like three to six miles ish 
and then you kind of run flat and so you're just rolling like the first three four five miles feel real easy and you're like i'm running ahead of pace this is great and i feel better than i planned on and then you run flat and you can you kind of work into it but you've don't realize that one the the net negatives have impacted a little bit muscle damage and then two you're not really prepared for what happens on the back half which is where they give you a bunch of punchy uphills uh some of those climbs that one's just a little over 100 feet in like mm-hmm. a half mile right or something like that three quarters of a mile doesn't sound like a lot to you trail runners but at the marathon when you're running right at threshold um that hits like a freight train and then you see the fields blow up and of all people it got eliud kipchoge who would have thought mm-hmm. so that's the the boston course yeah and that overreaching early is universal yeah it's fan just like fascinating to watch pros do the same thing the average joes do which is feel good early and instead of thinking this is dangerous think it's my day connor and then <laughs> the explosion happens scott fauble scott, scott fauble today took seventh place for the third year in a row. Unbelievable. And for the third year in a row, you did not see him until he was 200 meters out from the finish line. Yeah. Because he just chilled and ran a race for the course rather than getting caught up in the actual race and executed perfectly and came through in seventh place, top American, and did not show up until suddenly he was 50 meters behind Eliud Kipchoge (laughs) coming down the home stretch. And at first I thought it was man's coming back on him. And then it's, no, there's no knock knees there. That's, that's Scott. And, and Scott wasn't even in picture when they were showing the lead group. You saw the lead group and then for hundreds Ever. of meters, there was nobody, including Scott. So it's just goes to show like you need to go into heartbreak Hill and all the miles 16, 17 through like 21, 22. You actually need to be still like itching to go, like holding yourself back and hungry you gotta be like can't wait i Mm -hmm. still like i know i'm just like a tiger in a cage and it's really hard to do that that long in a race i have to imagine but um just watching the finish and the women's finish watching obiri open up and just put that speed to use and the grit and the arm pump and just the finishing straight god i got the hair standing up on my neck fantastic i was watching that Uh, no i was watching her in the shower I was literally, I was like, I got to do this podcast. I got to shower up. So I had the iPad, not in a weird way, Bracken. Don't be weird on me. I had it situated. No, no, no. Just that phrase. I was watching her in the shower. That'll get, that'll get gift by some of our listeners. I was watching her in the shower, but I really was. I was sudsing up. And anyways, I was dedicated to watching Mm -hmm. the race, but I was on a time crunch. And I still could appreciate the uh, intensity of the finish. Now you go ahead. Well, Helen O'Beary is the type of runner that didn't happen 10 years ago. She's a 1,500-meter and 5K world champ, two-time 5K world champ, and the last time in 2019, I believe, or 2017, one of the two. And she's moved up to the marathon now. This is only her second marathon, marathon, but she runs like a mid-distance track runner. She's bouncy. She's aggressive with her arms. And if you took any like 30-second snapshot of the race up until the last two miles and said, pick out the stride, who's not efficient enough to run a marathon, who will pay for it later on, you would always choose her. And yet she committed to this. She's training in Boulder at altitude with a marathon group, and she she broke away and then suddenly used her track speed at the end, which rarely do marathoners get to ever do. She actually looked like a track runner at the end. But you didn't see 1,500 runners move up to the marathon that wasn't a progression. And if they did, it was after their prime. 
she's doing it while she still has a right to go on the track and try to win the 10k or the 5k which is fantastic to see I think it's fantastic to see. Not to mention, uh, what they said she ran a two flat in the 800. That has to be more range than anybody in the field yeah. we've seen in recent times. I'll tell you what, Dathan Ritzenhine must be doing a heck of a job with the on crew. Like they just, they're just yeah. lighting it up. Whether he's recruited the right talent or there's a little secret sauce in whatever he's feeding them, uh, they keep showing up like his crew, like they came from nothing as a starter brand without a following with no athlete roster, David Ritzenhine, I think mm-hmm. on probably took a little bit of a gamble hiring them as their coach. And like, he's put together a squad out of nowhere. I th- seemingly out of nowhere. I've been impressed with their, their guys and girls. Yes. Emily or what Monson, Alicia Monson, Ali Hoare, all those guys. They're all good. And they race more. One of the big, and it's happening on the, message boards right now is the they're complaining again that one of the big complaints about nike athletes in the past which have dominated the u.s um, podiums or the nike based teams is that they just seem allergic to racing they just stay away and do their own little intra-squad meets and then show up for championships and the on crew is doing the opposite they're racing early and often and they're good yeah, I didn't think about that, but it is true. We're seeing a lot of them right now, aren't we? And some of the Nike athletes have been ghosts, mm-hmm. some of their featured distance runners anyways. And it shows in tough races who's been racing. Because no matter what level of runner you are, you have to stay on top of your tactical racing game. And it's the I I'm not a I'm not a big believer in a lot of the 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 criticisms of high level coaches and running camps but one of them is that you lose those race skills if you're always in really pristine conditions and obiri won a nasty race today it was cold it was rainy and those women were jostling like they were running an indoor track race there was so much contact just in the last 5k it was not a a pristine condition race it was gritty and she outraced the rest of the women and the track championship races everyone's so good now they're getting they're getting good tactical and you have to be on your game and race in a crowd. We saw a woman go down with like two miles to go in the marathon mm-hmm. today because she was running too close and got clipped. So I understand keeping the training block rolling and building all the way through, but you also have to keep your skill of racing sharp. Yeah. You make a very good point, which is uh, something I think I need to take to heart a little bit moving forward. After watching, it made me feel and think two things. Hmm. Uh, the first is I want to get out on the roads and rip like more than any other type of racing. It's confirming that I want to get out on the roads and run metrics or the track. It doesn't really matter. Um, and then two, I had wondered, you saw a pretty big split between the, uh, footwear, the alpha flies and the vapor flies. It seems like you, you, you get both. And then there's a few others. Some ASICs made their, I think I saw a few, maybe the Metaspeed Sky. I don't know what it ASICs is. ASICs and Adidas. Yeah, there's a few others. But I saw how wet it was out there. And any of you who have run in a super shoe, um, I get a little slip on my push-off in the Alphas when it's wet. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that affected a little bit of efficiency or the time or if maybe I just, I don't know, got a bunk pair of Alphas that don't grip super well in those conditions, but I noticed, do you notice a difference no, in those? No alphas grip. Yeah. They just, they don't grab very well. I wondered if that made a difference today at all. Certainly could have. Now the new ones have a new bottom. Oh, they do. The new, the Vaporfly threes mm-hmm. have a new bottom 
the uh, Alpha 2s have a slightly different bottom as well. And I wonder if the Pros aren't getting a different bottom anyway. You want, if you, I don't know if you noticed, but looking at Eliud Kipchoge's shoes, they always look different than everyone's around him. Even when they're, there's people next to him running in Alphas, his look bulkier and blockier than theirs. So, and I know when he... Well, they're always white. Always white. white but when he did his two time trial breaking two efforts, he actually had different shoes. In fact, when he broke two, he had a shoe, an Alpha Fly with three plates in it. So it wasn't even legal to run a real race in. But I think even today, he was in a shoe that no one else has. I think it's tuned specifically to him. So I wonder if they don't have that with the same thing on the bottoms. For a while on Nike.com, you could uh, design your own shoe. Mm hmm. Like back in the day, you could put whatever colors on your track spikes and your. You still can. You know, on some words on it or whatever. Yeah, you still can. But for a while, you could do it with the uh, Vaporfly mm. as well. And Tim Lambiris actually ordered a pair of Vaporflies with waffle bottoms. <laughs> and they ended up in China and lost in shipping, and he never received them. Bummer. Eventually, they just refunded them or something. But I wonder if they can do that for everyday people on their website, I'm sure the pros can be like, hey, I need a wet race option. So, but you, that point is accurate that the alpha is slippery. I've noticed it. I haven't run in the vapors in wet, but I've run in the alphas in wet and noticed sometimes same, slip, same. Um, yeah, that rubber's like real lightweight. Like it doesn't grab very well. I mean, it serves a on dry roads. You have no problem with it, but I, it's got an interesting feel, doesn't it? Compared to other mm -hmm. rubbers, it's like a more blown sensation. It's interesting. It was the uh, only part of their shoe that I believe they did worse than every other super shoe. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that the other super shoes looked at that and realized, I don't think we can beat their plate or their foam, but we can, we can have a better outsole than them. Sure. And so the other ones now are doing this like millimeter thin, super super fine type of rubber with almost a lot of them have almost like a a fine grit sandpaper feel to it mm. and theirs are all every other shoe is better except puma's first version their deviate nitro elite that was very slick but they're they're um they're faster and then asics and sockney and adidas especially they're all much better on pavement than mm. than nike's is Good to know. I was hoping Eliud would come over and really roll in America, but uh, we didn't see that. I was impressed. I mean, I appreciate Connor Mance for who he is. He's always been aggressive. He's always been a grinder. It was a little miscalculated, but I kind of appreciate him like going out and just inserting himself. He six miles into the race and he's the one leading the group for no real apparent reason. You, the writing was on the wall. You knew what would eventually happen, but like, I can't say I hate it. Cause I think he's one who eventually he's just going to stick. No. And then the U S uh, Emma Bates was the first American and pretty much securing her Olympic bid by taking fifth in a major. Uh, mm -hmm. she looked tough. She looked like for a moment, I was like, she got a shot at this thing. She only got gapped by like 20 seconds, 30 seconds. Very impressive. I was very impressed with her. She was so compact all yeah. the way through. A little more muscular. Looked so in control of herself. And Connor, I agree with you. He debuted at 208 low. The only way, the only place to go from there is more aggressive. If you're 208, the next stop is 207, 206. He went out on 205 pace with a downhill course. I mean, that's logical. It makes sense. He came through at 102. 
102.20. You know, that's on a downhill course thinking you're going to come back and probably 103 high, 104. That's a 206. That's a, that's a logical progression from a 208 debut where you finish strong. So I, I I support what he did. He was more aggressive than I would have been in his shoes. I would have been <laughs> tucked into the pack rather than leading the pack. But at the same time, that's why those they called them all alpha athletes at one point. You're down to 12 alphas. That's that's why they're alphas because they're out there all believing that they're about to break everyone. Yeah, they're all running with ego and throwing punches and um just fun to watch. You wouldn't think watching a race that lasts over two hours would be engaging, but the announcing team is great. Carrie mm-hmm. Tolson does a nice job. We feel a little connection with her since she was on the podcast and local. They just do a good job mm-hmm. of keeping you engaged. So where can people watch it if they have if they missed it? Do you know? Get some watching. Do you know where they'll replay that? As far as I know, Boston has this up all day long to like 5 p.m. or 9 p.m. or something. I think on that website they'll loop it, but it'll get online real quick. Okay. I know you're the guy when it comes to that stuff. But by the time this episode comes out, no, I don't know where you're going to find it. <laughs> but I was I was watching it thinking about you. You know, I've been thinking about your marathon probably more than you think I'm thinking about your marathon. That's adorable. <laughs> because I, th- I think that you're in a very good position as an athlete in a very difficult position as a racer, which is you have a higher level of fitness and you've never run anything close to a road marathon. Never. And so you have a time in mind that you believe you can run and that other people are telling you you can run. And being the type of athlete you are and the type of shape you're in, you'll go out and try to run that. And every single person has to feel the marathon for the first time. And the very best thing you can do other than feel it for the first time to avoid catastrophe is to watch other people. Yeah run marathons so as i'm watching this today i thought man watching connor or watching cj albertson or a few of these other people is probably the very best thing kirk can do (laughs) to realize yeah fitness translates but at the same time maybe i maybe i know a little bit better how to run my first one for having watched other people run hard well i mean yeah And, and once the piano lands on your back it's uh it, it appears to be like, you know, five second overswing on pacing. The first half can cause you a 20 second underswing mm-hmm. on the back half, leaving you minutes behind where you want to be. Do you know the longest road race I've ever run is a 10K? And I've only done that twice. And the last 10K I raced was in 2007. And I've only run road 5K since as far as road races go. So to say that. I have these aspirations of, and it could be road 5Ks that I want to rip up, but I I am getting very curious about that marathon grind, and I haven't done anything close to that. Do I know what it's like to race for two hours? Yeah, I just did it a week ago in a trail race. Yeah. So, like, I do have an idea, and I've raced long beasts that take two and a half hours in the mountains, but I've never run flat sub-threshold for two and a half hours, let's call it, ever. Not even close. So I'm actually... Um, considering so I can feel it, like don't put it past me to go out and do like a three-quarter time trial or something that you think would sound Mm -hmm. so ridiculous for somebody to just do on a Saturday. You might just, I might just do something like that to feel it out, which sounds silly, 
but yeah. I, it might be necessary for me. You get two camps on all these things. Like we talked about it with Mark Batras. You don't need four to six hour long runs to do an ultra. It's not even worth it. And you don't need a 20 or a 26 or a 30 mile long run to run a marathon. It's not worth it. You don't. However, you need to feel it and know what's coming to you. And so if you've never done an ultra, suddenly a four to six hour long run is like required groundwork in order to have an accurate depiction of what's going to happen on race day. And no, doing a 20 mile at marathon pace is not necessary for an experienced marathoner. Some still do it. You don't have to do a 22 mile long run, but you might have to in order to get a real sense of this is what my first one will feel like. So everyone's personal situation dictates whether it's smart or not to do it. And I think you're a candidate for a long time trial. Yeah. We'll see how that plays out. I'm just back to day one of a new block here, Bracken, and it's going to be a fun little build. Mm -hmm. Day one's the most dangerous because you're itching, you're fresh, you're feeling dangerous, mm -hmm. you're antsy. In about a week and a half, I'm going to feel like in the dirt. It always happens. I'll feel great week one. Weeks two and three, I'll have these little adaptation fatigue doldrums, and then things will just start clicking, 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 clicking. And so mm -hmm. I will have to be patient for those days. Um, anything else we should get caught up on Bracken before we dive into today's topic? Well, I talked last week about how I've started. I did that Hobie tempo as threshold interval style as a baseline workout. Mm -hmm. Well, I did, I've done two more since that are going to be staples of my build up here. And one of them felt kind of how it should I can run this right now, but not for nearly as long as I'd like to be able to. But I can see how half of this is mechanical issue and half of this is cardiovascular. And they're both going to get fixed at the same time. And if I can do it comfortably for a few miles now, I'll be able to do it for 15 miles in a few months just because of the quick adaptation. So it was the appropriately bad kind of feeling workout. Mm -hmm. Good and then bad. But you see what the fix is and you see it's doable. And then I had one Sunday. Uh, that <laughs> it was just a, uh, just cold water to the face on all my, you know, lofty thoughts of how good I am and how quick it's going to come back. It was, it was done at 15% incline, which for my money is the quickest way to expose yourself. It's the easiest way to feel crappy in a workout is to work between 10 and 15%. Can't fake it. And I just couldn't do the workout I wanted to do. I wanted to do three by 15 minutes at a certain pace. And if you check my Strava, I went eight minutes, six minutes, four minutes. I was hoping for 45 minutes of work, understanding I might not get there. And eight, six, four. Did you set a speed and say, and plan to just stay there? And that was the idea. And then you realized you had over, you know, kicked your coverage. Yep. Cause that's what I did today for my uphill tempo run and tempo is the right term folks. I set a speed that is a tempo. And then I stayed there and I said, my body will tell me when it's time to be done. I made it five minutes less than I was hoping, 25 minutes instead of 30, which is totally fine with me. Yeah. But uh, continue. Yeah, three by 15, and I went eight, six, four. And the six and the four were a negotiation to keep myself going because the six and the four were every bit as bad as the eight. And I didn't want to go any further because it would have been really compromising what I was trying to do. And so I had to just give it a break and then tack on rowing afterwards. But I had to rest. I had to take like 15 minutes, like stop my watch and save the workout and everything before I did the next section because, oh my goodness, it just was one of those, okay, 
maybe the goal isn't because my goal is to do three by 15 at this pace and maybe get three by 10 if I couldn't or 15, 15, 10. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I can do three by 15, then the next time rebuild it, try to get to three by 20 eventually, but then reset at a faster pace. And it quickly showed me that no, 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 the goal is going to be work up to one by 15 with like 10 and eight afterwards, then eventually get to three by 15. And then we can start talking in a few months from now about maybe going faster or just reassess the pace entirely. Five miles an hour. That was at the speed 5.0. I was at five, five. Oh, that's very ambitious on the Nordic track. That is, that is blasphemy yeah yeah you you definitely were swinging pretty hard that's six to that's six oh or more on a regular treadmill well based off some of the things i had done in the past interval wise at that it felt like it was a good swing not a not a blasphemous swing Mm -hmm. but it very quickly showed the gaps in my engine always which is staying power running the pace is rarely the issue for me Doing it for one to three minutes in intervals. I think I did 11 by three minutes at that, you know, 33 minutes of that, and then finished off with a 2K time trial on the row. So I was thinking, yeah, if I did that, I let's shoot. I'm a few more weeks down the road, but no, the difference between three minutes and earning a 60 second break and going 15 minutes straight was catastrophic to my cardiovascular system. Yeah, an uphill work isn't one you want to do if your system is still a little depleted from work earlier in the week. It's just like uh, incline quality work will reduce you to your worst available that day, like instantly. Yeah. So that probably was a little bit to it as well. And I wasn't programmed for that. I was supposed to do some flat compromised, but I was a little beat from the week. So I decided to settle into some incline threshold. And we all know how that goes. Yeah. It's easier on your body pounding wise, but it's... uh, it's not a workout you can cruise through. So I was ambitious, and I paid for it. I went at 5.0 miles per hour today on my uphill tempo run uh, on the Nordic track. That makes me feel good. And so uh, I tempered my enthusiasm. But I made it quite a bit further than you, so I feel pretty good about that. I got 18 total minutes of work. hey I was hoping for 30 to 45. Could be worse. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's give the people some – let's teach the people today something. Um. Let's give this a half an hour. Let's do some teaching. Yeah, it's been a while since we taught you guys something, it feels like, for some reason. Um, So when Bracken was gone and I was, you know, holding down the fort, I interviewed Tyler German, and we talked marathon training pretty specifically and float-style work, and we were chatting through some of his favorite workouts and all that. And after the episode, I got messages from two different athletes of mine. One more in depth than the other but the question was okay so tyler german is talking about float for example mile on mile float workout he's talking about his mile on being at like 450 and his float being at 530 and her question amy if you're listening was well, how does that workout even apply to me? For me, my on would be 12 minutes and what the heck would my float be? And that workout would take me well over twice the amount of time his would take him. Like, is that workout still applicable to me or do they need to be scaled? And I was like, huh, I could argue both sides of the fence on this one. And that's a good question. So we talk about these workouts, like, okay, if the pros are doing a 10 mile threshold run 
Does that mean I need to do a 10-mile threshold run? Or if they're doing eight by a mile with two minutes jog recovery training for the marathon, do I need to do eight by a mile? Or would it make more sense to do eight by five minutes, which would be the same amount of work time-wise that the pros are doing? And so it becomes muddy. And so I thought we should chat that out today, how to scale your workouts based on your fitness. That makes sense? A hundred percent. This is a question that has existed since people started hearing about workouts that other people were doing. And and I started getting onto the running message boards. Doesn't matter whether it was like die stat, float, um, let's run. Uh, back in the day, the slow twitch had more things on there for running specific, but any of that stuff. And from day one, there's a conversation on there about so-and-so does this as their workout. Is this a good workout for me? Or should I do this full thing to prepare for mine if it's going to take me an hour longer than them? And the argument always rages back and forth, which is, no, it's not appropriate for you. They're getting it done in an hour because they want an hour of stimulus to, well, they're preparing for a distance and you are preparing for that same distance and that distance is going to take you 50% longer. So you have to spend 50% more time on feet in order to be prepared for that. And then it's, well, yeah, but if they're running 100 miles per week, do I shoot for that as well? Like, where does that logic break down? Do I have to spend the same amount of time as them or the same amount of miles as them? Or not the same amount as them. And and so there's always a breakdown somewhere. And this no longer makes sense for what I'm doing. But people really struggle, myself included in the past and from time to time. What does it look like to take a really, really good workout that a high-level athlete does and make it work for you? It's constant on these running message boards. So I actually really waffle over this one. And depending on the athlete and also depending where they fall on this, it's a sliding scale. Sometimes, yeah, your eight by a mile faster than marathon pace with two minutes rest may be the prescription, even though you're notably slower than the pros doing that same workout. The next athlete, I might be like, no, let's do eight by five minutes because that's more appropriate for where you're at. And so I want to pose a, a, an impossible question to ask you right off the bat. And mm-hmm. it, the question is, do you feel like there is a correct universal answer to that question told you it was hard you have to say no right if there was a yes if i had to choose one thing i would say yes there is one answer that more often than not will be right sure i agree it can't it won't be right universally but more often than not the safest thing in my opinion to do and the smartest thing is to convert whatever they're doing to time all distances are converted to time And that is step number one. So mile repeats aren't mile repeats. You look at how long is it taking them? Four and a half minutes. All right, I'm doing four and a half minute repeats. Now, if that means you can't stand time-based intervals, then you have to then reconvert back to you. What kind of interval at my 10K race base? Okay, that'd be about a 1,200 meter. So I'm doing 1,200 meters on and 800 meters off rather than mile on four minute float or whatever it's going to be. But converting to a metric that gets rid of ability is the first step most of the time, but it still does leave some gaps. Some workouts are not intended to be converted like that. So no, I can't say one thing, but that would be my answer if I had to. These are muddy waters. They are. Which is fun. I think it's fun to chat out muddy waters. But if you didn't want to deep dive, Kirk, if you were an athlete who said, I don't want to overthink it, I just want to rest assured that I'm never in danger. 
I'm never doing anything foolish and I'm not risking anything and I'm going to get good workouts in, then yes, your rule of thumb would be do the duration of time, do not do the distance. That would be my my golden rule for someone who didn't want to think more, who just wanted to execute and never worry. Well, then you also have to be like, well, how do I know how fast the pros are running these workouts? And what is my, what's their eight mile threshold run? If their eight mile threshold is, is 445 pace, well, then what that takes them 35, 40, 40 minutes. And how does that, and you know, it's like going to be, there's like cloudy waters. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the really the universal battle comes down to this one thing. And the one thing is, well, if you're a three-hour marathoner, I'm a five-hour marathoner. If I translate my quality sessions to time-based to match yours, am I just preparing for a three-hour race when I really need to be out there for five, right? And that's the big question. Yes, like, that is. Okay, am I going to be underprepared for race day because I'm not getting the correct distance which the race will require? And that's what the debate comes down to when you just crack it down to its simplest form. And so I have, I think this is a sliding scale from left to right. If you see a line drawn from the bottom left up to the upper right, it is a scale like that, or you could inverse it, the other upper left to bottom right. I don't really care. But on one end, the closer you are to, let's say, top tier athletes, if you're on that close third, easy answer probably can emulate what they are doing or a mildly scaled version because you're not going to be putting yourself at super high risk of spending too much time on feet, injuring yourself, burning out, not being able to stay, sustain the effort due to duration. Then you have this middle ground as this, as this line is being drawn upwards or downwards, however you want to look at it, where it's like, well, they're running five minute miles. I'm running seven minute miles. You'd start doing the math. That's a lot more time on feet still. Maybe you pick and choose your battles. I think that workout makes sense and the next one doesn't. Then you have the last third, the ones who are on another planet, the ones who are running 10, 15-minute miles, where I say 9 out of 10 times that workout should be scaled because we want to keep the integrity of the quality. So I don't know if there's a right answer across the board. I think the middle ground is the gray zone. I think if you're on one end, I think there's a right answer. If you're on the other end, I think there's a right answer. And then the middle ground is a little bit gray zone. Does that make sense? Or do you feel like that's just full of shit, cheap answer? No, it makes a lot of sense. And I spend a lot of time thinking along those lines. You do? Okay. But I have a different way. I actually think about it now. Okay. I mean, I still think about that depending on... That's, that's question two for me now. Oh, sure. Question one, I think is... You have to look at every workout and say, what is the intended purpose of this workout? Because my belief is that that sliding scale applies differently to different workouts or not at all to some. And so if we take a look at, let's say that Tyler German 3-2 workout, what is the intended purpose of the 3-2? If you had to elevate or pitch it to someone, why are you doing that workout? Well, you're doing that workout to feel out a pace that is <clears throat> faster than your goal half marathon or marathon pace. And then choosing to recover at a float that would be considered your worst possible reduction of pace during the race if the piano ends up falling on your back. So you're playing with a little faster than race pace and then a little slower than race pace. And you're going back and forth between the two to know how to run well, how to recover well, still working hard. 
and then also get a little bit of overspeed training. That wasn't a very concise answer, but I feel like that's what was. That's all right. It was good though. And, and why 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 are you choosing three minutes and two minutes? What's the significance of that? Why are you choosing that rather than any other duration? Um, I don't think there's a significance there other than the fact that you want to spend more time working than recovering. Um, the float style can be transitioned. He said, he mentioned he does a four, one float, which he said is terrible. That sounds terrible. He's also doing mile on mile off. You know, float. But why not 10, five or 2010? Why is it short? Uh, the, do you have an answer to this? I guess. No, no, no. I'm truly asking you. I'm being the athlete right now. Who's trying to analyze a workout. Probably help you switch gears, work in and out, make the effort short enough where you can work hard the three minutes. And just long enough on the recovery where you feel like you might be able to gather yourself for another push. So I think the two to three ratio is probably good. Extending those out further, let's say five and let's say 10 and seven, that would just be too much time recovering. So I think keeping the duration short on each end is good. I don't know if that helps. Okay. So I would then look at that and say the purpose is to accumulate time above and below race pace in short enough chunks that they're manageable, that they can challenge you, but not be so much time that you get into a crazy rhythm. The rhythm is the moving, not one individual rep. So in that case, if the purpose is not to be building up duration of race or pounding and the purpose is not to be running a specific pace until you can't. I think that's a workout I would just leave right there as is for any athlete. 100%. Three on, two float, back and forth. Because the way you described it to me, there was not some greater purpose that would be compromised by me being much slower than Tyler and attempting that workout. I agree. Now, if we tried another workout, let's say five by mile at 5K pace with three minutes rest, what's the purpose of that workout? That workout's purpose is to probably breach VO2 max and get into race type effort over duration train so that come race day um you recognize the pace one and two you are trained to sustain it for three miles or more which typically pays off well so we're looking to um induce the feeling that you're going to feel well racing a 5k and giving you just enough rest to charge up to do it a little further than race distance to make sure you truly are over-prepared, which I think that philosophy is sound. Mm -hmm. um, what would be your description there? Well, I, I would I would like that. Yeah. Get to VO2 max or worse. Um, work for that full you know duration of five-ish minutes for a, a pro, four to five minutes, and get used to what that, that stride feels like and start really taking some of that poison that running that fast does to your system. So I would look at a workout like that if I was a 30-minute 5K runner and say, okay, they're doing their reps intending to feel bad and recover and do it again, but they're only asked to hold that feeling for four to five minutes. If I'm doing it at race pace, which is 10 minutes, I'm actually being asked to hold VO2 max, mm -hmm. or for me, it's going to be slightly slower because you can't keep VO2 max for 30 minutes, but I'm being asked to hold that same intensity feeling because it doesn't matter if i'm slower or faster a 5k hurts like a 5k hurts you're asking me to hold that for double the duration of an elite athlete that seems like you're actually punishing me for being slow <laughs> by being a 10 minute miler i have to sit in it twice as long as you do so maybe i'm converting that one down to five minute intervals and i may have to do a few more of them because i won't be running at vo2 max since i'm running 30 minute race pace not 15 minute 
race pace. And so because of that, I can accumulate more of these, but only in these five minute chunks. And I might do a few more so that I can still hit three or four miles of work, but I'm going to get the distance, but in a smaller chunk, I think I would scale it that way. Does that make sense? I think that's the actual um, perfect answer in that scenario. If there were one for this specific person who's half as fast as the pro is yet yeah, scale what you believe they're doing to time. And then if they're doing five reps, well, maybe you do seven or eight. And so you're still accumulating more time, but it's in bite-sized chunks. And that way you're getting closer to race duration, which becomes very productive for you. So I actually think, yeah, you are punished in a sense because you're still technically doing more work time-wise, but you'll be on race course longer time-wise. So taking a distance-based pro interval, turning it to time, and then maybe adding just a few more reps than what the pro did seems like a pretty fail-safe formula, Bracken. I like that. But so that's two different workouts that I use two different points on your sliding scale. Yep. So I think by asking the purpose of the work, and, and again, this one of the first things I ever heard when I tried to dive into how do you coach and how do you train? A lot of the first questions that listeners are sending to us, we hit all of those, not a lot of them, all of them. We hit them at some point. One of the first pieces of advice that I read and then was told is you must know why you do every workout. And some people even use that advice wrong. Like how many, how often should I be doing this workout? They're like, well, why are you doing the workout? You got to know why you're doing it. And they used it in terms of like the progression of the plan. But in reality, I think it's important to really not do a workout if you're trying to train for performance that you don't understand the intended purpose of. Because once you int- you understand the intended purpose, then you can execute it properly. For a lot of people, it's less about how frequently do I need to do at this stage of training, more of how do I execute this one properly? So if you know what the intent of three by mile versus five by mile or three, two float versus a four, one float or a 20 mile long run versus a two hour long run, knowing the intent of those, now you get to move to step two, which is Kirk sliding scale. Where do I fall on this scale and how do I get that intent out of the workout? And you can start to see why some people just hire a coach right away or why some people get obsessed with writing their own plan or why some people just lifelong struggle to execute any workout because there's a multi-step process to this. Yeah. And I was speaking in generalities, of course, and then we're now splitting hairs, which is the point. Um, For sure. I wasn't arguing you. I was playing devil's advocate. No, you weren't. You were giving really good advice on how this should be looked at. That wasn't devil's advocate. That was just... Sometimes devils give good advice. Do they, though? You're always supposed to knock that one off your shoulder. Be like, get out of here. You suck. No? what i tell sometimes you just got to go for it i guess um so then let's dissect the portion the people will have so Mm -hmm. we're not giving you a ton of tangibles here uh you know it's like still going to be a little subjective but i think we have a starting point and i think what the people are going to be asking themselves is like how do you how will i be prepared properly then for my race let's say i'm running a marathon and the top marathoners are doing 10 miles of quality work on their big threshold day, which, I mean, Tyler German did 90 minutes of 3-2 float at 4.502 pace. He ran 15 miles of quality work before more than that, whatever that comes out to. I don't know what even what that comes out to. Too much. 18. Anyways, ran a lot of quality work three weeks out, right? So 
if they're doing 15 miles of in and out threshold float intervals and what my modification is only having me do seven miles of in and out float style threshold intervals how am i going to be prepared for race day like what what do you say to that question because that's the one where i started Mm -hmm. like i can i can tell you what i believe is going to be how this is going to play out but i have to imagine most people are asking themselves that question i have a pretty firm thought on this um but i want to if you want to go first please do we're going to be on opposite side of the coin on this not that we contrast each other, but this is going to be one of those episodes we think about totally differently. So roll with your you pretty know? concise take because I don't have a concise. I have a very murky, theoretical sliding scale for this part of it. The difference between top pros and myself or you at home who's slower than I am is there is an efficiency piece to what the top pros do that sometimes you either have it or you don't. If you're five foot six and weigh mm-hmm. 200 pounds and you're a runner, your body is not going to handle it the same as a five foot six Elliot Kipchoge who's 125 pounds. How tall is Elliot? Five seven? Something like that. You're going to. If that. If that. Connor Mance looked big in that group. Did you notice that? And Connor Mance. Yes, is he did. Tiny. Bizarre. Anyways, you put Connor Mance in the collegiate running scene and he looks like the smallest one out there. And then you put him in a group of elite African marathoners, and he was the biggest frame in the group. Wild to me. Wild. And what's Connor Mance? 5'7? Five, 5'8? Five, yeah. Okay. On a good day. Tangent. Anyways, the top pros are so much more efficient than myself, Bracken, you at home. At times that a lot of times if you are a slower athlete and you try to emulate the workouts that the pros are doing, you just are not running efficiently for the majority of your workout. You're running a poor stride. You're breaking down. You're risking injury. You're feeling like junk. You're keeping an elevated heart rate way too high for way too long, which is going to cause a crash and burn in your training plan. So the reason that I feel running shorter duration and prep for a longer race than the pros is that what we're hoping for is for you to learn how to run fast and relaxed as long as you're capable of at that time without compromising injury, too much time on feet, poor form, breaking down, running worse and slower than you're intending to on race day, which ends up leaving you feeling not confident and kind of crummy about yourself, which also factors in. And so because we are not built like rabbits, like these pros typically are, and I'm talking for myself here too, if my marathon is 45 seconds per mile or minute per mile slower than 40 than elite marathon or like I am in a different playing field than them. But nonetheless, like I really believe that focusing on running efficiently and your best is way more important than going in and putting in shitty time on feet, which ends up being unproductive, risking injury and typically hurting confidence that you're able to do it on race day. So that's where I stand on that answer pretty firmly. Mm hmm. What is your take? Is it different? I figure yours would be close to that. Well, I kind of just start thinking it from an entirely different point. I don't know if I would have considered most of those things. Okay. I look at it and say, all right, let's say we're talking about the marathon. The average marathon finisher is somewhere between four and five hours. The average elite at this point is like 205 to 208 for the men and 215 to 225 for the women. The best in the world. Yeah. And so when we look at how we're training, they're training, they're not running much slower than their anaerobic threshold. 
a four to five hour runner cannot run close to their aerobic threshold. And so the quality workouts that the pros are doing actually don't really apply to us. And so then we have to start thinking about teaching to the test. The single greatest need for a pro runner is to have their engine so perfectly primed that they get as close to their ceiling as possible. Single greatest need for the average marathoner is to have the durability and repeatability in their stride to hold that stride for 26.2 miles. I agree. And so now we start looking at workouts like the 3-2 and say, well, screw pace. I need to accumulate 90 minutes of impact at close to the stride I'm going to keep on race day. Because with the pros, and we talked about this in the past in a different episode, the difference between their marathon pace and their 10K pace and their 5K pace is much closer. Those differences are smaller with with them than they are for us. And consequentially, or maybe because of their stride, their stride is very, very imperceptible. The changes, like Connor Mance, if you watched him on the road today, especially those first three miles, you didn't know if he was running a marathon, a half marathon, or a road 5K. His stride looks the same at all times. That's not the case for us average people. I am example A of that. I have a easy run form. I have a recovery run form. I have a tempo form. I have a, uh, let's say a threshold form, a 10K form, a 5K form, a mile form. My stride looks different in every single thing I do. And so when I go to focus on race paces, I'm not necessarily even using the stride I'm going to use in a marathon. And consequentially, when I get to mile 15, I've now run more steps with this form than I ever have before because I've been working faster than race pace because that's what pros do, but I'm not using a stride I'm going to use on race day. So what is the purpose of my workout has to be tempered with, does this actually help race day? So still doing faster work than usual for me will help my marathon because it's going to have cardiovascular benefits. But all those cardiovascular benefits don't matter if I cramp up at mile 20 and walk jog in. So I think the number one goal for most everyday runners is to be able to handle the demands of the marathon first or a half marathon or be able to run a good stride for a full 10K race and have enough of the quality work to be able to get through. But sometimes that means doing the full workout of the pros at a slower than recommended pace in order to get all the stride work in. And other days it means you do have to do engine work and you're going to have to do much less of it than the pros because you have to go longer on some of your other days to build up that resistance to impact. That's why I said, Kirk, ours are going to be totally different because mine is this weird, nebulous, non-specific answer because I'm thinking about all the ways a race can go wrong. But that didn't mean that yours was not 100% spot on because it was. Well, uh, depending on, on the athlete, but I mean, I feel like you kind of muddied the waters a little bit for good reason because you bring up all good points, right? A lot. Um, so I was trying to clear the air just a little bit for those who are like feeling insecure about not being able to run uh, the distance or time that some of these yeah. pros are. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And the specific workout matters too. Like, so like the different, like a threshold run of 60 minutes, could you do that? Maybe. And you'll just cover half the distance they do. That's okay. You can work on getting your threshold up to that duration. Yeah. But, you know, if it's mile repeats, for example, or three by 5K, mm-hmm. like you might want to start thinking about three by two mile or three by 15 minutes versus three by 5K. So you bring up very good, you bring up very good points, Bracken. Um, but I think if I like, if we have to stand on sides, like a side of the fence 
and you have to like use some sort of underlying reasoning to make your training decisions. I guess my thought is like, well, let's try to come up with a universal, somewhat universal rule for you to at least have peace of mind. Mm -hmm. So when it's like, okay, how do I make this decision? Should I really be doing three by a mile to get ready for my 5k if I don't even think I can run for 30 minutes straight or like, which would be race day or 40 minutes straight, or am I much better off doing again? Like, like it's just, it's just like having, having something to fall back on. So you don't have to hem and hoe all the time because this training is that way in general, if you're making decisions. So just trying to like give you a side of the fence to at least make upcoming training decisions on would probably be helpful for maybe a handful of listeners. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to do. But your answers are better than mine in the fact that they are actually correct. <laughs> I don't know and about that. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with rules of rules of rules of thumbs, right? I'll give a rule of thumb then. Okay, do it. All right. Yes. It's a two part rule of thumb. You have two thumbs. Who has two thumbs and likes muddying up waters? You. <laughs> that's that good. Guy. First part of the rule. Go and look at what pros are doing for your intended time on course not your intended race distance so if you are a 30 minute 5k runner you're not taking workouts from 5k pros you're taking workouts from 30 minute races that pros do which is going to be a 10k yeah now we've just solved a lot of the issue right there because now you're working the same systems they're going to be working if you're a five-hour marathoner, you're not copying a two-hour marathoner's training workouts. You're looking at a five-hour racer's, pro racer's workouts to see what are the best in the world doing for five hours, which for some people might be 100K. For some people, it's probably more like a 50K. Mm -hmm. So a 50K good training plan is going to be a really good training plan for your marathon. So step one, convert to time for who your target pro audience is to mimic. And then step two, copy the principles of those workouts for what you can handle duration-wise, which still is probably going to be converting to time for most people. But if they're doing 20 hours of training to get ready for a 50K, well, yours is going to have to look a lot different. We understand that. But if they're doing three by 15-minute threshold work twice per week, you can copy that verbatim. You're just going to be slower and you're going to get less distance in. So that is my two-part rule. Choose the duration of your intended race, not the distance, and then convert to time. I like, that could have been one thumb. I think that could have, you could have used one thumb on that. Choose your role models correctly and then convert to time. Okay, two thumbs. Well, I'll give you a third rule of thumb if there's somebody out there with three. I guess I have my own thumbs. I got my own thumbs. Here they are. I'm going to use one of them. There it is. You do. And that is um, the shorter the duration of your race, the closer I believe emulating the pros is reasonable. And the longer the duration of your race, let's say 10K and under, somewhat trying to get close no matter your ability level becomes more reasonable um, due to time on course, time demand, time on feet, separation of both of those things. And the further out you get, six miles plus, whatever, it's very subjective, of course. Uh, if you're in the slower crowd, I think the more likely you are to modify most everything that you're seeing. But like if a 5K athlete, you know, most are overtraining stimulus, but let's say a 5K athlete or the goal is to run three, 5K worth of quality work and they're doing 
12 by 400 meters with 200 meter finishers faster than race pace, you bet your butt, even if you're a 10 minute miler in a 5k, that is a doable workout for you. And those are part of, you know, even Tyler Germans Tuesdays are an overspeed day to 16 by 400 meters is one of them. He did this last week. Like, is that daunting for a lot of you? Of course it is. But I do believe like a lot of that overspeed training for the shorter distances or even race pace training, I think is you can be a little more comfortable doing the distance thing. I'm just giving you a generality here. There's always exceptions, of course. And then the longer you get and the further away, uh, the less uh, likely you should be to try to emulate some of these workouts you're seeing. General rule of thumb. That's what I think. Yeah. You could poke holes in it if you want, but. I don't need to. I, I think that it's a, it's an unfair situation to be in, to not be gifted like the the demigods of sport because the rich get richer. Right. The faster and more efficient and more talented you are, the more work you can get done in the same time as someone else and the more durable you generally are and the more time you have available to do fun quality stuff. And so the people that can run a 14 minute 5k also have time to run a hundred miles per week in the same amount of time it's going to take you to run 40 or 50. Yep. And the people that can run that have time then to double because they're not as beat up because they're hauling around a hundred less pounds than a lot of us. And so we, they get to work on all the nuances of the sport, whereas a lot of us have to just focus on, let's learn how to run. Like if you started a child out, we get this question every few Q&As. My 10-year-old wants to get into running. What should I do? Just let him run. Get him used to jogging around daily and do some fun little speed work. Why would that work for an 11-year-old in year one of running and not for a 40-year-old in year one of running? You still have to learn how to run. You're going to have so many new gains when you begin running that worrying about specific workouts is a fool's errand because it's not going to matter. You're going to get better no matter what you do, so learn to do what you do well. And that usually means don't complicate things. So doing a little bit less work and spending more time on let's just get out and run easy today and try to be able to run again tomorrow rather than I need to hit three quality workouts a week because that's what Tyler German does kind of doesn't matter for us even though we need it more. Yeah. We need our engine more than they do. They already have a great one. We need their aerobic base that they already have because we don't have it. But it's hard for us to build both simultaneously. So when in doubt, choose the one that's easier to work on because you have all the rest of your life to work on really intricate workouts. So that's why, again, if you press me to make a statement on it, it's choose the simple route. Convert to time. Don't overstress about pace. Focus more on running well than anything else. But if you're to the point where your noob gains are gone and you're looking to do well, now you have to start looking at that. What's the purpose of the workout? Are we working on engine or are we working on durability? If you're working on engine, you might want to scale that thing way down so that you can work on it appropriately. If you're working on durability, you might have to go complete that workout that they're doing. Mm -hmm. This might be your day where you're going to be on feet for two hours because you're going to be on course for four. And you just have to make that sacrifice. Yeah, the rich are going to get richer. They're going to get their work done in half the time as me and be ready to work again tomorrow. I'm going to be a mess for three days after this, but I do need the durability. So let's go work on that. Preach, brother. I will say testament to durability. We are highlighting the quality, flashy, spicy sessions for what we're sort of intending this episode to be. Yes. And the nice, soft, comfy pillow you can sleep on is you still have the capabilities to go out there and run nice slow miles for a long run 
for as long as you feel your body is ready for in a lead up to any of these races. So if durability is a question of yours, which for most of us it is, especially over the longer distances, especially if the longer distances are new to you, that's okay. You modify to you the spicy quality work when and if it makes sense. And then you can still go out and build confidence Mm -hmm. by saying, okay, I just ran for two hours today. Slow, but I was able to. So that's a confidence booster. So you can always balance it out by still going and getting the duration in at a lower effort, which is where the confidence to stay for a duration will come from if you're not necessarily hitting all the duration on the quality end. And so we didn't touch on that point a whole lot in this conversation, but that's sort of like the pillow you can sleep on if you're modifying workouts. Yeah, and you're right. Early on, you're going to have to probably separate workouts into two buckets. I'm going to get better on this day, but I'm going to have to do less work than my peers. And I'm going to get more durable on this day. And I'm going to have to run longer, more time on feet than my peers. And balancing out those two, I'm not going to do as flashy of a quality workout so that I can go do my 10 mile run and get all 10 in. Because it's going to take me 40 minutes longer than my buddy. That's just what it's going to be here. Yeah. I had a, I've mentioned this, alluded to it in the past, but I had a very interesting experience my first year of college running. I was down at a D1 program, and I didn't belong D1, but they were a a struggling program, and they had just lost 10. We had 10 incoming freshmen and 12 people on the team, which means there were two returners, which tells you something about the program. call that a rebuilding year. Yeah. They had 10 people leave the program. It tells you that they don't like the coach very much. Uh, the coach is about what you'd expect in that. Okay, there you go. <laughs> the the, the cross-country program was an afterthought. Uh, the coach was a very accomplished runner who had very little people skills, and those that he had were reserved for the runners that he trusted and were upperclassmen. And he seemed to have really good relationships with them and had almost no time for young runners. Unfortunately for us and him, 10 out of 12 were freshmen. It's like a nightmare scenario for this guy. But so we got very little coaching. But he said one thing that was really good for me as a runner. And early on, I asked a question about mileage or training or what. I don't even remember the question I asked. And he looked at me real dismissively and he said, let's just get to you can run an hour every day without having to write home about it. And then we'll talk. Hmm. (laughs) I was really butthurt about it, but he was also really right. I can't even run an hour seven days in a row and then do it again the next seven days and the next seven days and the next seven days without writing home about it. Right. Like a seven hours of running week. I'd call my parents and be like, Hey, I just ran a 70 mile week. How awesome is that? Mm -hmm. I couldn't run a 70 mile week. I was at a D one program. So his point was accurate that you need to get good at just running first. And then we're going to add in all the other things. Yeah. You can do some strides with your workouts. You can cut down some of your runs. You can have a long run in there. You're still going to run two hours once per week, but you can't yet run an hour every day. So I'm not going to give you all the keys to the kingdom of this program yet. And I think we need to remind ourselves that sometimes that maybe we're just getting too cute. Mm -hmm. So I know this, this, this episode is about scaling workouts down, but sometimes we have to scale our own expectations to ourselves in terms of what we need to be working on right now. Maybe some of us just have to get to the point where we can run an hour every day without it being something to write home about. And then all those other things will be more impactful to our training because there's a fertile bed of soil that we can build it on. So kind of an aside, but Coach Frenette out there, that stuck with me for the past two almost two decades that sometimes you just got to go run an hour 
Well, this is a cute episode. We're we're trying to be cute. We're trying to split hairs for those nerds out there who mm-hmm. want you know want it all. But when it comes down to it, you're yeah. right. Kind of you're kind of backing up my point is like when in doubt you can still get time on feet, and time on feet moves the needle forward. Simple as that, right? Don't need to overstress. Like step one, time on feet. Step two, get cute. It depends what's what step yeah. you're on, right? So I know we're running long, and we said we weren't going to. But I do want to leave them with something tangible, which I'm the culprit here. I've been making things non-tangible. So if we could break down the standard workout, just headings, threshold, long run, VO2 max or faster, and give one golden rule for what to do on each one of those workouts. Okay. So people at least can have something they can quick write down. and Do it quickly, Bracken. Okay. Okay. Why don't you kick this off? Threshold. I think is I think is simple. If you're running threshold workout, you do the workout by time. Hundred percent. Whether it's ten by thousand or three by five k or a sixty minute tempo, you convert it all to time and you hit the time that the pros are trying to hit. Because we're all governed by the same thing. You're gonna try to get twenty to forty minutes of tempo work in. Of threshold work, sorry, not tempo, of of, of threshold. That's my rule for that. Convert it to time and do what they're doing. Yeah. Threshold work screams time versus um distance for sure you pretty much every single time you can convert it um and and people of course you can be like how am i supposed to know what this takes a pro to do like good question i don't even really know Mm -hmm. all of them but we can guess right so that's we're we're guessing ballpark ballparking i mean i put all my stuff on strava i'm nowhere near a pro but um like some people are pretty good about outlining exactly what they're doing and you can see it and then some are going to remain a mystery till the end of time but um, yes, I agree. Time-based threshold work pretty much all the time. Next one. So I think this is a tricky one then faster than threshold. We're talking what people would call speed work that right around VO two max, a little slower, a little faster, 12 by 400, four by four by 400, three by mile, things like that. What are we doing there? I think that's where you, that's where you, you need to figure out where you are on the scale. I don't, I, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, my my inkling is to veer closer to distance and either scale the reps, um, potentially, um, or come closer to emulating. But if anything, I think go distance, but scale the amount of reps five by a mile becomes three by a mile, 16 by 400 becomes 12 by 400. Maybe you're changing your rep rest rest schemes a little longer because you're running longer than they are each rep. But I would say distance may be scaled on the rep count. What about you? I might do the same thing, but opposite or inverse. Keep the reps and shorten the distance so that you can hit the time. Mm -hmm. Because the faster we're working, I think the less we want to be out there flailing away with bad form. Yeah. But same thing. I think you want the total distance they're doing or the total time. And the closer you are to their ability, the more you're shooting for distance and the further you are from their ability that sliding scale changes to time right i agree a 30 minute 5k runner i don't think you should try to run a full mile at vo2 max you might have to do you're going for total time but an 18 minute 5k runner 20 minute yeah let's go for it you're gonna spend some more time on feet but i think you can go for it that's where needing to know kind of where you are on that scale like how close are you to the, the top end pros and then what's the last one you wanted to chat out Long work, long runs, long workouts. I have I have a very specific rule on this. What's yours? No, you go for it. If you're feeling specific, roll. Split it in half. 
Mm. Half the time, do what they're doing in order to build up the tolerance to it. If they're doing 10 miles, you're doing 10 miles. They're doing 15, you got to go do your 15. But balance it out by the other weeks, the odd weeks, convert it to time and do that to save yourself. You can build up pounding on 50% of it, the reps that they're doing. But you have to do that by giving yourself a break sometimes. So I think you split it dead down the middle. Choose half the workouts to hit the distance, half the time that you're converting it to time. That's fair, too. That tracks. Like A lot of the top-end pros are long running every weekend. Every weekend they're going out and they're hitting some version of a long run. Well, maybe every other weekend now you're hitting that version of a long run, and then every other week you're scaling it back 50 to 70% or 30 to 50% of what, what you typically would see going every other week. And it's very effective as well as far as increasing endurance and durability and all of that. So I, I think that's a, that's a fair, it's a fair advice, fair rule, fair okay. thumb to point up in the air at everybody. I don't have anything to add to that. Actually. You don't have anything to add to it to put a bow tie on it. As far as that last one specifically, or to put a bow tie on the whole thing, any and all, any and all. Um, I would say when in doubt, convert to time. When in doubt, if there's any remote question, convert to time. I like it. The closer you are to being able to run, let's say, you know, you're within a minute or two per mile of the pros on whatever the given distance, more of a green light to go off a distance. If you're further than a minute or two off of what the pros are running on pacing, more likely to convert to time. But I think even for mortals or seemingly immortals to some of you, like myself, I still feel light years away from where the pros are at. Um, mm-hmm. I still have scaled workouts, and it's okay to do so. But it's going to be muddy for all of us, and that's just kind of how this goes. But as long as you can, I don't know, come up with some sort of rule for yourself to help ease these decisions, that would be good. Hiring a coach would help. Um, but I think as long as you're showing up with purpose regularly, and you're not dragging all the time because you're overtraining for where your current capabilities are, I think that you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. But when in doubt, convert to time. I'm going to leave it at that. What about you? Yeah, I think if you get in, let's say there's 50 training weeks in a year, we'll call it, just for a nice, easy, workable number. If you get in 100 pretty decent workouts throughout the year, you're probably going to be in a better place physically, physiologically, and mentally than if you get in 70 awesome workouts and then you drag through 30 or miss out on 30 because of issues that pop up. And that's kind of optimistic. If you, you might only average 50 a year if you're swinging at them. So the when in doubt convert to time ensures that if anything, you might be working a little less than your max, and then you're going to get all 100 of those workouts in a year. Yeah. Um, all right, bow tie-ish. You're probably just as confused now that the episode's pretty much done than when it started, <laughs> but that's okay. Sometimes the topics just lend themselves to being confusing, muddy topics and Maybe there's a glimpse of clarity. If one thing struck you today to help you make some of these decisions, then we've maybe done our job. Wouldn't you agree, Bracken? Ish. There's a reason some of these have been being debated for 60 years. Yeah, it's a tough one. If we had a golden ticket answer for this, it'd already be in book form. True. Um, folks, our merch is on sale, 50% off. 50% off. That's a lot. Everything must go. I got these boxes sitting here in my office, and I'm sick of looking at them. 
and we need to get more gear on more people. 50% off. So get it well supplies last. We probably have a third of our inventory left. We might not have all your sizes, but go check. Buy it. Buy it, buy it, buy it. That's all. Runningpublic.com. That's where you can find it. Click shop. Boom. Click buy. Click out, get all the colors. They're all great. Isn't this one great, Bracken? This nice black and gray. Isn't it nice? It's flattering. And it hides pit stains. Get two like Bracken and I do and turn and turn one into a cutoff. You need two of everything, right? One for regular, one to cut the sleeves That's off. Right. And then you might need a third to sew a hoodie on if you're a real douche. That's fine by me. <laughs> Buy three. What are you saying about me? <laughs> <laughs> we need to end this oh, thing. That's a great way to wrap this up. <laughs> Bow tie there.